Well, welcome to Grow Course number five. Number five, we're almost, we are about halfway through our Grow Course in Ephesians. And I am just uh, I'm excited about tonight. We're going to plumb some great, deep theological, theological truths tonight in the book of Ephesians. We'll be studying chapter two. But before we do so, I want to start off with our Grow Photo of the Month. And I have another entry this evening. This one was submitted to me by Christy PK last month. So I'm using two of yours, Christy. Love this one. I think it was from Marilyn's mom that you sent me. And I want to show it to you all. A photograph illustrating the concept of growth or growing. And here we go, if you can see it. For those who are listening via recording, we have a few little chicks apparently crossing the road. And we see the lead chick there. I think he or she is trying to scale the curb. So we have some chicks crossing the road, and you can see this one lead chick straining, stretching, trying to make it over the curb, onto the sidewalk, onto the pavement, onto or into safety. So I love that photo. Thank you, Christy. Well, how's that relate to growth? Well, a lot of growth is about persevering, isn't it? It is about persevering. It's about overcoming, you could say. The bump in the road, all right? The bump in the road, right there. And uh, so that's what it reminded me of when I looked at that photo that you sent, Christy, just uh, last month. So with that in mind, how are we doing? Five months into it, have you hit the wall yet? Have you reached the curb? Are you trying to climb over? Are you persevering? Well, don't, don't give up, all right? Don't give up. It's uh, saying that God's word is a privilege. It's also hard work. But we're going to start seeing the payback if you haven't already. I trust you already have received some benefit, no doubt, from our study so far. But really the payback, even yet to come, I think the payback's tonight. I think the payback's really going to come when we hit chapters 4, 5, and 6. Because all we're studying now are the indicatives, all the truths are going to inform all these commands that we're going to find in the last three chapters of Ephesians. I was talking to my wife this evening, asked her how it was going, and with studying Ephesians, I said, well, it's going pretty well, but it, you know, I'm doing a Bible study, you know, and I think she was just kind of looking for some application, because a lot of these questions that I ask are really the work, hard work, of, hard work of observing and doing interpretation. Really what we're doing is like, in these first three chapters, is really building a foundation for a home, right? We're pouring the concrete, the foundation, the base, we're putting up the pillars, but the fun part, really, for many of us, is the inside, right? It's getting around to the decoration, you know, making it a home. That's really going to come in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We're building the foundation. We're seeing the structure of Ephesians in these first three chapters that are really going to inform all the commands that follow and really the application for the book as well. So all the interior decorating ladies is coming in the chapters to come. But we're now setting the stage, building the structure, putting the infrastructure in place for that. With that in mind, let's pray as we begin this evening. Well, Lord, thank you for gathering us. We are gathered this evening under your word, your mighty word, your word which speaks to us today. It is as relevant to us today as it was to the Ephesians who first heard this letter read in their church in Asia Minor. We trust that your word will do its, have its effect on us this evening. Oh, Lord, we want to understand your word. We want to understand it better. Lord, we want to glory in the truths that we're about to read this evening. We don't want to just have an intellectual head knowledge. We want these truths to move us, to affect us in our perspective. We want your word to inform our affections for you and for the gospel. So, Lord, do your work tonight. Use your word as we humbly place ourselves before it. And, Lord, would you do your work? Holy Spirit, would you illumine, illuminate the word this evening that would help us comprehend and thus apply the second chapter of Ephesians, we pray. Amen. Well, amen. Well, by way of review of our course so far and of last week, let's start with the big picture, book of Ephesians. How many chapters? Six chapters. The first three chapters are indicatives, right? 
What is true of us in Christ? The last three chapters are filled with imperatives, how we then should live based on what we studied in the first three chapters, right? I entitled the first three chapters in my charts, The Christian's Wealth. In the last three, last three chapters, The Christian's Walk. Wealth and walk, all right? And then last week, we plumbed into our first chapter, chapter one, and we looked at the different paragraphs that we had labeled previously. We started off with the greetings, Right, Paul to the saints, the faithful saints at Ephesus. And then verse 3, his intro, grace and peace to you. We're going to see grace and peace highlighted in chapter 2 this evening. Paul is very intentional about every word he uses in this letter. And then we went on to the doxology we found in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. talked about every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. We looked at how many blessings? Anyone remember? <laughs> we had quite a different range of numbers, didn't we? That's right. I had seven down. Seven blessings, right? Let's check them out. We were chosen to be holy and blameless, number one. Number two, we were predestined for adoptions as sons. Number three, we were redeemed, received redemption by his blood. Number four, the mystery of his will has been revealed to us. Right? Number five, we have an inheritance. Or another interpretation, we are the inheritance. Number six, that inheritance has been sealed for us by the Holy Spirit. And seven, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. So after going through the seven spiritual blessings, Paul then has a prayer in the end of chapter one. A prayer for enlightened hearts, right? That we would comprehend all of our spiritual blessings in Christ. That we would comprehend the power that is at work in us and in the church. And then we concluded chapter one. I entitled that first chapter, The Father's Purpose. The Father's Purpose. Does anyone remember the key verse from chapter one that we identified? Which verses were they? Really the key verse for that chapter, and really I would say for the whole book, which is found in chapter one. What verses are they? You can look. Verses, yes, verse nine and 10. This is really the linchpin, I believe, to understanding this book in Ephesians. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ is summing up, uniting all things in heaven and on earth under his headship, under his rule. Literally, he is summing up. He is uniting all things. He is reconciling all things to himself. But as we talked about last month, does that mean then that all will be saved? Is this a passage that would preach universal salvation? Well, no. We know from other parts of Scripture that is not the case, right? No. Rather, as you read in Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow one day. This is upon Christ's return, the consummation of time and history. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The day is coming when Christ will return. And all enmity, all rebellion will end here on earth and every knee will bow, either willingly or unwillingly, but one way or the other as Christ returns. So Christ is in the work of reconciling all things to himself. And he started here on earth with us. Right here, the people of God, the church. We are his pilot project, okay? In his grand scheme of reconciliation, it starts with us. And one day all would be brought to knowledge his rule. But he's doing it now on earth with us. We're not waiting till heaven. Now, we're coming together as one people under his word and under his authority. So that was chapter one, the Father's purpose, the master plan, so to speak. Well, tonight, we're in chapter two, right? Chapter two, and before we actually go through the questions, I want you to hear in full chapter two. So I'm going to turn to my wonderful friend, Max McLean. 
to hear him as he reads chapter 2 in its entirety. So just one second. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I wish I had that voice. I'm sorry, guys. That is so cool. We were talking earlier. I think we should turn, turn on the lights, you know, when Max McLean speaks. But there we go, Ephesians 2 in its entirety. Well, with that in mind, let us open up, and if you have your... Questions from last week. We're going to go through those. We're going to definitely share some answers that we've gathered from our study this last month. I'm going to interject a few things, comments as well, as we go through this. So we have some time to do that together as one group this evening. So once again, our aim is to see how Ephesians 2 is put together, how it fits into the larger scheme of Ephesians, and how it's particularly arranged by paragraph in this chapter. So that's what we're seeking to do, and I'll make some application along the way that hopefully will help us and serve us now and for the weeks to come as well. So let's start off with your first question here as we probe Ephesians 2. Basically, Ephesians is broken up into two very large paragraphs, right? Verses 1 through 10 and the verses 11 through 22. So we're going to start with that first glorious 10 verses, a well-known section of the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Well, as I mentioned in your first question there, this first section, the first 10 verses, is an elaboration or an expansion of verses of a topic which Paul has already introduced in the first chapter. So remember, Paul has already really addressed all the topics he's going to expand and elaborate on in the further chapters. So here we come to chapter 2. What is this section an elaboration on? Which verses that are found in the doxology? Of chapter one. What do you come up with? Just go for it. Do you have it? Verse seven? Great. Any others agree with him? Any other answers? 15 to 23? Four through seven? 
Verse 10, we have a little variety there, okay. Yeah, I was, I was thinking really, when I was looking at that, asked that question, really honing in, particularly on verse 7. You can make a case for some other verses, but really the most direct link I see there is the idea of verse 7 of chapter 1. In him we have what? Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of tresp- our trespasses, trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And it's that grace that we're going to be expounded upon in these first 10 verses. So why are these first 10 verses right here in chapter 2? How does this section fit or correspond with the theme of Ephesians? If we identify the theme or the key verse, verses 9 and 10, that is a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, how does this section fit in with that key verse? Yeah, any thoughts there? Showing his mercy, that, that he is, right. But how does it fit particularly with verses 9 and 10? This idea of the Father's purpose and plan to unite all things in Christ. Yeah. Right. So verses 1 through 10, as I said, we see Christ reconciling us to himself, uniting us to him, right, under his authority, under his rule. So we see these first 10 verses really play into that key theme or key verse. We find in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. How does this first 10 verses as well flow from the ending of the previous chapter? Look back at the prayer that Paul ends with, this prayer for enlightened hearts. And look particularly at verse 19 and 20. How does that relate, this idea of Christ's power or God's power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, question two, how is verses one through ten, chapter two, a continuation of this prayer? Do you see the link there? Okay, so look at his power to save us and the grace to believe. Right. What is the power that's mentioned? What, what's the evidence of that power in this prayer in chapter 1? Power that did what? How is it exhibited, manifested? Right. Well, in chapter 1, it's raised Christ from the dead, right? That we would know the power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power which did what? In Ephesians 2 made us alive in Christ. The power that he's praying for, the way to realize that our hearts would be enlightened to understand and to see the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that works in us to resurrect us as well, to make us alive to Christ. Verses 1 through 10, made alive in him. It's the same power, folks, that made us alive to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, he does. Right, that power is not only seen in Christ, it's experienced. We've experienced it. For all of those who are now in Christ, we have been made alive in Christ. Why? Because we were once spiritually dead. And we're going to talk more about that as well. We were dead in our trespasses. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sins of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, at the first four verses, we were dead in our trespasses. We weren't sick in our trespasses. We weren't stubborn in our trespasses. We weren't stuck in our trespasses. We were dead, spiritually dead, 
and estranged from God and unable to respond to God's call apart from his power at work within us that regenerated us, made us alive, that we could then respond. We were literally dead men walking, weren't we? We're like, we were zombies following the course of the age and the prince, the power of the air. We were unable to respond to God. We were dead until he made us alive. What wonderful news. When I ponder that truth right there, we've been made alive in Christ, Christ's power, that raised from the dead is at work in us. I think, is there any situation that is too difficult for God? Anything that's above his pay grade? Anything which is beyond his outstretched arm? Is there anything, any situation at all? If God could raise Christ from the dead and raise us spiritually from the dead, what can he not do? What situation can he not save? Maybe that unsaved family member that you're praying for, a friend. Can he not reconcile an estranged relationship or resurrect a dead marriage? Can he not reach us in financial crises when we're ailing and our health is failing? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? No, his power at work in Christ. It's the same power that was at work in us that made us alive in Christ when we were dead. And that's the first four verses. Excuse me, the first three verses. And then we get to that pivotal point. That's question number three. Which verse is a turning point in the flow of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10? And what word or phrase tips you off? What was that? But God. Verse four, right? But God. Oh, may those be sweet words to you. These are the words. This is the anthem of every Christian. But God. But God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God. Following the course of this world and the sons of disobedience. But God. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. But God. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God. May those be sweet words to you. I know just, I was just I was talking to the guys when we were traveling to Minnesota. I happened to be in this part of Ephesians. Just, I think that, what sweet words. I don't want to forget those words. But God. That is my hope. That is my hope. May it be yours as well. God intervened. He awakened me from the dead. It's a story of the Christian life, isn't it? But God. Well, let's move on. We go on the latter part of this first paragraph. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. A well-known scripture. For many of you, perhaps you've even memorized these two verses. Verses 8 and 9. Let me just back up, actually. Let's just read again lead up to that verse, and we'll read those two verses as well. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace... You've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We'll stop there. The question I had for you in looking at this passage is this. Do we make any contribution to our salvation according to these verses? Any? No. None, nada, nothing. How many statements or points does Paul make in these verses to reinforce that answer, no? 
because she has four. You agree with her? Four points. He's emphatic, isn't he? I think he's trying to make a point here, right? A strong point. Going over the top on those. What? Let's name them. Four. This grace is not your own doing. Clear enough? Number two. It is what? A gift of God. In other words, you didn't earn it. It was a gift given to you by God our Father through Jesus Christ. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So no one may boast. Get the point? It's all of God but God. Men is alive in Christ through Christ Jesus that no one may boast. Well, how about faith? Isn't faith a contributing factor here? Don't we at least bring that to the table? Saved by grace through faith? Yeah, yeah faith is a gift, is it not? Yeah. See, see, faith is what we do add to it in one sense, but it's not meritorious. It means it doesn't earn any merit with God or any favor with God. Our faith that we express is simply a response to what he's already done. See, he made us alive in Christ. We weren't even able to respond in faith until he made us alive in the first place. So he had to make us alive. We weren't able to awake ourselves from the dead. He did it. He regenerated our hearts. So our faith is a response to what he's already done. So even that we can't take credit for. Yes, we're still call, called to have faith, to repent and have faith. Yes, we are. But that faith, yes, is ultimately derived from him. It is a gift from him. We wouldn't even know our need, let alone be able to respond if he hadn't first made us alive in Christ. But God, it's all of him from first to last. By grace alone, through faith alone, how's it go? In Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, right? Here it is, right here in Ephesians 2. We'll just keep probing this first section a little longer here. Having question five, compare and contrast the use of the word walk or walked in Ephesians 2, verse 2, and Ephesians 2, verse 10. These, this word walk is a, it's a key word, isn't it, in Ephesians? And it really brackets this text, this section, this long paragraph, the beginning and the end. But what's the difference between the first walk that is mentioned in verse 2 and the last, the second usage of it in verse 10? Anyone? Okay, how do we used to walk? Okay, in our trespasses, yes? Following the world? Following our flesh, right? Disobedience? Yeah, all those, right? We walked in unrighteousness. This word walk is with a purpose, in a sense. We were following the desires of the flesh. We were following, ultimately, Satan himself, Right? We were walking with purpose and unrighteousness. To contrast that with the walking in verse 10, what type of walking do we have there? Walking in good works. Walking in righteousness. So what's the difference? How do we get there from verse 2 to verse 10? Yeah. By accepting Jesus, right? By responding in faith to the work he's done in our hearts. Yes. Good, so walking in our works. Verse 2 and verse 10, walking in his works. Right. Let's tease this out a little bit, especially that verse 10. What does it mean to walk in his good works. I do want to pause here for a little bit and just think of what this means. I think there's glorious implication and application for this truth. That we, we often, we often stop, stop at verse 9, don't we? If you memorize this, we often start at verse, we memorize verses 8 and 9. But you can't include 10. See, we've been saved, yes, by grace through faith, but we've been saved to do what? 
We've been saved for good works. We have been saved for a purpose. That purpose is good works. We've been saved in order to walk in the good works which he has prepared for us in advance. In other words, we've been saved to serve. That's what we see here in Ephesians 2, don't we? I mean, that's amazing. He created me. He created you. He saved me. He saved you to do good works. But it goes deeper than that. He chose you. He chose me, as we learned in chapter 1, before the foundation of this world to do good works, which he had prepared long before you were even created or saved. God had a plan. Yes, to save you, but he also had good works planned in advance for you to walk in, you specifically, that would glorify him. Before our hearts were regenerated, before, when we were dead in our sins, when we were unable to please God, when our works were futile, he saved us. You see, when we were walking in verse 2, in unrighteousness, in our own dead works, they were unfit, unable to please God. I reminded a verse in Titus, Titus 1.16. Let me read it to you. Titus 1.16 says this, they, as the circumcisers, the legalists, so to speak, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That was us prior to Christ. We were totally unfit for any good work. We were unable to do any good work in the eyes of the Lord. We were unable to please him, unable to respond to him, unable to walk in the good works which he had prepared for us. And all our works were ultimately unfit. We were unfit for any good work. But God saved us to serve, to walk in those good works. How does this truth help you? How does this truth inform how you serve and what you do? Let's think of some ways. How does this verse, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, how does that truth, how should it affect us in the way in which we serve at home, in the church? Some ideas. What are the implications of this in your work? Let's brainstorm together here. Bonus question, not in your notes. Ah, that's great. You hear that? Our work will be fruitful. Yeah, elaborate on that. That's good. Great. So all the things he's called us to do, whether we're raising children, evangelism, discipleship, vocational calling, absolutely. Yeah, you see, what that tells me is our labor, our good work, is not in vain. That encourages me. It's not in vain. That which God has called you to do as a father, a husband, or mother, or wife, or in your vocation, in your career, in your service to the church, it's not in vain. God has prepared those works in advance for you. He has prepared you for it. He has sanctified you for it. He set apart you and this work for his service. And he has made those works good. You can't, you can't fail to please him. As we are faithful, we cannot fail to please him. As we walk in the works which he has prepared. That's great news. What else? What are the implications? Yeah, Christy. Serving with a grateful heart. Great. How so? How does it help you serve gratefully or thankfully? Great. It's gratefulness. Yeah, it's, it's all of him, isn't it? From beginning to end, right? He's one that saved us, prepared us for these good works, and fit us uniquely for these good works. And he's going to fulfill his good works in you. So yeah, no room to boast. But yes, much room for gratefulness and thanksgiving as you comprehend this amazing grace, right? Great. Humble as well. It is very humbling. Yes, it is. Yeah, Bentley and Cindy, yeah. Great. 
great. We can fight with this verse, can't we, against doubt, second-guessing. Maybe I missed it. You know, maybe I missed this erroneous thinking. I missed plan A for my life, and I know I'm plan B, and I'll just kind of eke it out, I guess, but, you know, no. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're not going to miss it. You're not. He's prepared these good works for you. You're not going to miss it. He saved you for those good works. I find that immensely helpful and comforting. You know what it does mentally as well? It helps with me just with contentment as well. That as I am faithful, I won't miss out on what God has for me. Perhaps you don't necessarily say this out loud, but maybe you think this thought occasionally. You know, if I don't put myself forward, my boss, my spouse, even my pastor, they won't recognize my hard work. They won't appreciate me for who I am. They won't appreciate my gifting or my skill set. I'll get passed over. I'll get left in the cold. My gifts will be wasted. You have those thoughts in one way or the other? You know? No, they won't. Not if we're reading Ephesians 2.10 correctly, and I believe we are. See, when we have those thoughts, we can begin to chafe, can't we, in discontentment. We begin to strive, right? We strive, but we never arrive at contentment. If that's the case, we often find it hard, don't we, even to recognize or to celebrate the good works of others. Because others' good works that you see and that are recognized, they're all about you. It's a reflection back upon you. Well, I'm not doing those good works. I mean, because a threat to you. Maybe you feel guilty. I'm not doing those good works. You feel guilty? Maybe you feel self-pity. Well, I'm not, I'm not as gifted as that person. I wish I could sing like them or serve like them. I wish I was as smart as they are. On and on it goes. So we can give it a self-pity. Or we can just get angry. Can't we? No, God has prepared good works for you. Especially for you. He knows who you are. He knows how he made you. You can be content to serve him in the capacities in which he has placed you and positioned you. He's an expert at that. He's placed you in the body just where he wants you to serve with the gifts he's given you. We can be content. Number one, our work's not in vain. Number two, we don't need to doubt. We can have contentment. Any others that come to mind? Yeah, Cindy, did you have one before? You had your hand up. And then Jason, yeah. That's great. I love that phrase. Yeah. That's good. I like that. For the recording, it gives sanctity to your work, even the mundane things of life, right? Down to doing dishes or changing a diaper, whatever it may be. Good. Yeah, Jason, then over here. Zeke, yeah. Jason, yeah. Great. I like that. For the recording... It fosters a godly ambition, right? What if you're ambitious and it doesn't work out then, Jason? Where, where, where do we go there? Yeah. Well, you have an ambition to do, to do something for the Lord and, you know, you try and you fail. It doesn't work out, you know? Right. Yeah, I was agreeing with you. I'm just what I was trying to draw out was okay. You have godly ambition to do good works, okay? So you try, <laughs> you fail. At least in your perception, you fail. Well, maybe God didn't have those good works prepared for you after all. Okay, I, I can live with that, right? Right. But it does inspire a godly ambition, doesn't it, for His glory? Right. I don't think you fail if you try with the right motive. I don't believe you fail. You already don't. But you may look at it and go, "Well, I, I don't see a whole lot of fruit here," you know? Yeah. Right. It, it, yeah, I can. That's a great answer. I like that. Yeah, Zeke. Good. Zeke said, He provides for us and equips us to do the things He's called us to do. Right? It says in verse 10 that we are His workmanship. We are His work. He's crafting us, He's inputting into us by His grace to do the very things. So there's grace and there's strength to do the things that He's asked of us. Oh, that helps me as well. I don't often feel that way. But yeah, one more. Yes, Matt. Great. We get the privilege of walking. Matt was coming and he likes this, that the word usage there, the walking, that, that imagery there. 
the intentionality, right? We can participate in our own sanctification. Yeah, it's not like, well, Lord, okay, zap me with good works. No, we, we need to walk, put one foot in front of the other, right? In faith, right? And walk in those works, serving him. Great. We're going to move on here. That's a great little excursus there from the first 10 verses of Ephesians. And uh, there's a lot more we can mine there. But I do want to head off and talk now about the second large paragraph, verses 11 to verses 11 to 22. Here he is shifting gears a little bit now. He's talking about our own reconciliation with Christ. Now he's bringing this teaching about Jew and Gentile being united together. And we're going to explore what Paul is communicating here in these verses. But first of all, your question in your homework was this. Ephesians 2, 11-22 is an elaboration or an expansion of which verses were first introduced in the doxology. What do you think? Oh, okay, go ahead, sorry. Great, he made us both one. Yeah, I think when I was doing this, my chart here, I, I labeled this paragraph one new man coming from verse 15. He has made the Jew and Gentile one new man in Christ. So yeah, where's the link? I think particularly, we can link that back to verse 10, actually. He's uniting all things in him, in heaven and on earth. Who is he uniting on earth? He's uniting Jews and Gentiles together and making one new humanity out of the two. Yeah, I think there's a direct link there to our key verse in Ephesians 9 and 10 to what Paul now wants to communicate. Yes, he reconciled us to himself, verses 1 to 10. Now he's reconciling Jew and Gentile together to make one new man. We're going to talk about the significance of that as well. But but we did that. Question number seven. Which verse is the turning point in the flow of, of verses 11 through 22. Much like we identified the turning point in the first 10 verses, where do we find it here in the second section? Yeah, verse 13, right? Similar language. Verse 13, instead of, instead of but God, it's but now in Christ, right? Let's tease that out. We were separated from Christ, but now in Christ. Right? Actually, I'm really going to divert question number eight here. What are the five experiential realities of all those Gentiles, all of us who lived outside the old covenant? I jumped ahead there. Let's answer that question, then I'll go back to my point. But now in Christ, the turning point. But let's look at the first three verses there. What was true of us prior to Christ? We were separated from Christ, right? Great. Number two, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Number three, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. Great. Number four, having no hope. And five, we were without God. It's a pretty dire picture, isn't it? We were separated from Christ, but now in Christ. We were alienated, but now in Christ. We were strangers, but now in Christ. Having no hope, but now in Christ. We were without God, but now in Christ. Very similar construction to what we saw in the first 10 verses, right? Well, question nine. What barriers have now been removed for us, for Gentiles, according to Ephesians 2, 13 through 15a. And what is the result? Okay, sorry, what was that again, Angel? We're now closer to God. Right, so what bears have been removed? Right, we're closer to God. In other words, we were far off. There's a chasm, right? We've been brought near. What's the next one? Good. 
Hostility. What kind of hostility? Between him. Between who? That's in God. That's not what he's talking about right here so much. Jews and Gentiles. Let's pause it just, pause it just for a second. because I think we fail, perhaps in our day and age, to really comprehend the significance of that. How radical it was that God would unite Jew and Gentile together. We can hear, okay, that's nice, I understand, but do we truly understand? I was thinking about this today, actually. Remember Peter in Acts when he was told to go to the house of this Gentile centurion, Cornelius? How radical that was for Peter. In fact, before a messenger came to request Peter's presence, God gave Peter a vision, right? Remember, a sheet laid out before him? What was, it, what was on the sheet? Yeah. Animals. What kind of animals? Unclean animals. What did God say to him? Kill and eat. And then shortly after that vision, right, someone comes to the house, knocks on the door. Peter, got an assignment for you here. When you go to the house, you come to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. But Peter was hesitant, wasn't he? But God had prepared the way for him through this vision. He says, he, he goes in Acts 10 to Cornelius' Cornelius's house. He says, listen, you know, as well as I do, Cornelius, that it's forbidden by law that I even enter your house because I am a Jew and you were a Gentile. There was a hesitancy, but not just that. There was more than that between the Jew and Gentile. There was a hostility between the two. A hostility so great in biblical times between Jew and Gentile that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus for his teaching regarding bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And for the same reason, he wanted to kill Paul as well. Let's take a look at that. Luke 4. I want you to comprehend this hostility. Luke 4 is another pretty well-known passage here where Christ is speaking in the synagogue. He gets up to read the scripture of the day in the synagogue. And it comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. So he stands up in his local synagogue and he says these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sits down. This is the day the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But read down. Then Christ says these words. So they're cool with them right now, okay? They're, they're amening Jesus, you know, reading from Isaiah 61. I'm with you, brother. Great word. May it be. And then he says these words. Verse 25 and 26 and 27. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, i.e., a Gentile. In verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elijah, many in Israel, and none of them was cleansed, but only who? Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. And look at the response in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with, with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. Why? So that they could throw him down the cliff. A few verses ago, they're singing his praises, and they want to kill the man. Why? Because of his words, of God's mercy to the Gentiles. What's interesting, when he was quoting Isaiah 61, he actually stopped in the middle of the verse. 
We end with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But you know what the very next words are? It's this. The day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Every Jew, every Jew knew that meant vengeance on their enemies, vengeance on the Gentiles. That's what they wanted to hear from Christ. They wanted to hear the Lord's favor upon them and vengeance for their enemies, vengeance for the Gentiles. But he didn't say it. He said just the opposite. He said mercy to the Gentiles, not vengeance. And they turn on him on a dime and they want to kill him. Let's look at Acts 22 as well. Same dynamic is happening in Acts 22. Here we have Paul. It's been prophesied that he would be arrested, handcuffed in Jerusalem. And indeed, we see he gets there. Things aren't going well. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews are a little antsy. They are harassing him. And then Paul stands up at the temple in Jerusalem and gives his defense before the Jews. Well, things are going pretty well. He's recounting the story, all right? His testimony, okay? No problem there. They're quiet. They're listening to Paul, his defense. But then he gets to verse 21 after giving his testimony, he says this verse 21, and he, as God said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the who? Gentiles. Look at verse 22, the very next verse. Up to this word, they listened to him. What word? Up until the command to go to the Gentiles to bring the gospel. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so they tried to kill him. Wow. Why? Because he was sent to the Gentiles. Do you see the hostility here? The law separated the Jew from the Gentile, and there was great hostility as well. Hey, they were the chosen people of God. The Gentiles i.e., most of whom they saw were the Romans, who were ruling their land with the enemies, and they despised the Gentiles. That helps, doesn't it? When we see that God, in his master plan, came to reconcile us, yes, to him, but also to reconcile Jew and Gentile. There was no more greater animosity between the Jew and a Gentile. He's taking the most divisive relationship they knew and he said I've come to reconcile you together as one under my rulership do you see it that was radical yeah Bentley we have been and look at what he's doing as well what he did and what he's accomplished in Ephesians 2 verse 15 He made the two, he reconciled the two, Jew and Gentile, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. Okay? Not from the old law, the old covenant that separated Jew and Gentiles. That he might create in himself one new man. This new means one new man in terms of new in quality. There'd be one qualitative difference now. Another way you can put it is he created one new man or he created one new ethnicity out of Jew and Gentile. One new man from the two. Not just a Jew and Gentile coexisting together. No, one new man, one new ethnicity. One people defined not by their ethnicity or cultural heritage as much as defined now by Christ. That is now their primary identity as one new man. He made one new man out of the two. Lenny? Yeah. Turn to hostility? Yeah, and that's great, certainly. The level of hostility between right, a Jew and a Muslim, <laughs> or us, right? Christians and the Muslims, right. 
Yeah, this is fierce. And God reconciled both together in Christ. I think the implication for us is the church as well. It's that God is bringing, even here at Palm Vista, is he not? All different races, ethnicities, backgrounds. Bring us together as one people who are defined not so much by our country of origin, but defined by Christ. That is to God's glory. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Hopefully our church will reflect that. I believe it does here in Miami. What God is doing, making us one in Christ. doesn't mean he abolishes all distinctions, okay? But our primary identity is now not in our flesh and blood. Our primary identity is in the blood of Christ. And that's a big difference. And only Christ can do that. Only Christ can unite different people, ethnicities, under one banner, his banner of grace. And that he's done, he's doing. It's a powerful testimony and reality to what God is doing and what he will do. But I'm getting ahead of myself in chapter three. That's going to be a wonderful thing to explore. So what is the result? What is the result Christ removing the barriers between Jew and Gentile. There's one new man. What are some other results that we see in the remainder of this text? Okay, I heard peace, right? And that word peace, you know, has the, the Jewish connotation, shalom, right? Wholeness, I think really salvation, peace, peace with God and peace with one another as well, right? Peace. What else do we see in here? Reconciling us both to God, right? What else? Fellow citizens of the household of God, right? Access to the Father in one spirit, right? Dwelling place of God. He's making us now together a dwelling place of God. Two synonymous terms here. There were fellow citizens of the household of God, which grows us into a holy temple. That word for holy temple is the sanctuary the Holy of Holies. He's uniting the most hostile elements of his creation, humanly speaking, and making them one, right? And he is dwelling now in the midst of them. We are the Holy of Holies. We are the the sanctuary where God now dwells. What a heavenly picture. What a picture of what God is doing in the church. He is dwelling among us. God's Manifest presence through his spirit is among us as we gather as his people, as his church. Wow, what a picture, huh? Of the church and what God is doing. It's what he's doing right here at Palm Vista. It's what he's doing. His great reconciling work. Well, last question. In the flow of Ephesians 2, why do you think verses 1 to 10, made alive in Christ, precedes verses 11 to 22, which I entitled One New Man. In other words, how do these two paragraphs fit together? Any idea? Yeah, Bentley. Sure, go for it. I think I'm following now. I mean, that, that is true. I, mean, I think you're summarizing that second paragraph there. But maybe you said it, but I didn't quite hear it. Why, does, why must verses 1 through 10 precede verses 11 through 22. Yes. It's good, good. Thank you. I mean, it's over here. I mean, right, we were dead, right? Percent didn't made alive, right? Right. That's what you're getting at here. Yeah, I agree. Anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, Matt and then Christy? Yeah, good. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Christy? Yeah, yeah, it is. I think there's a linear logic here, isn't it? We must first be reconciled to God, and then, as I said, then reconciled to one another. In one sense, spiritually that occurs simultaneously, but experientially it doesn't. We're reconciled to God first, and then we experience here on earth that reconciliation with one another. But that vertical must first precede, in one sense, the horizontal. That's why so often when we deal with conflict or counseling, we want to deal with the relationship with God first because <laughs> the, rec- the vertical affects the horizontal relationships, okay? So we address the vertical first. And it's the same thing, Paul doing a similar thing. We were reconciled to God. 
and thus also reconciled to one another as well. I think that there's a linear logic there that Paul is getting at. So the first 10 verses is the vertical reconciliation. He's not dealing with so much with Jew and Gentile in our relationships, but our relationship with God, right? And the second half of the chapter, our relationship with God via one another as well, the horizontal. Good. And that completes chapter two. Any questions that you'd have in the remaining minutes here on this first chapter, or even the first two chapters? Is it coming together in your mind? The structure here? Chapter one, as I said, you don't have to use these names. I'm just using what I've titled them. Chapter one is the Father's purpose. Purpose in what? Uniting, summing, summing up all things. Chapter two, it's the Son's execution of that plan. And what we just talked about is how the Son executed that plan through reconciling us to Himself and thus to one another as well. That we can enjoy fellowship right here at Palm Vista because of these realities. And because of these realities, we can serve one another and walk in the good works that he's prepared for us. And those good works are serving one another. And we'll hit that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. All right? Great. Well, why don't we conclude there? I will be handing out, probably or sending via email, Palm Vista Informed, your homework for chapter 3. Probably do that next. I'm still working on it. So probably get it to you early next week, probably by Wednesday for the Palm Vista Forum. So you at least have three weeks to work on Chapter 3 when we gather again on March 9th, right back here. So thanks so much. You are dismissed.